0: You might be here this morning and maybe just joined us for this series, and this is like part four, and you might be wondering, what's, what's the purpose of studying the names of Jesus, right? Didn't Shakespeare say, you know, a name, a rose by any other name is still a rose? You know, what's the big deal about a name, you know? Uh, aside from the obvious, that from Revelation to, or Genesis to Revelation, I should say, uh, and everything in between, the, the whole story... Of the Bible is, is the unveiling or revealing of Jesus. So he is the most important person uh, that we can come to know and we can come to put our trust in. And so, and so the, the story of the Bible is the story of Jesus. And, and all of his names and titles are, are so important. He said himself, in his own words, learn of me. He said, and when you do that, when you learn of me, you will find rest for your souls. Uh, rest is something that, that that we all long for, we all need, we all desire, you know, uh, that peace and satisfaction and that joy that's found in Christ, you know, p- people are looking for that elusive thing. Sometimes they don't even know what they're looking for, but they're looking for this rest, this, this peace that is inexplicable, that, that passes understanding, you know, but we found that in, in Jesus Christ, and so th- that's just the obvious, you know. Uh, one of the other aspects of, of discovering the names of Jesus, I, I believe, is, is the victory that overcomes the world. This is how John put it. He said, he said it like this. Who is it that overcomes the world but he that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What, what's, that, what's that noise? It's, we get static going on? You all hear that? You don't hear that? All right, yeah. He says, who is it that overcomes the world? He that believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcoming the world is a big thing it's a big issue and and being able to overcome as john uses this word world it's the it's the world that is in opposition to god it's it's the the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh the pride of life and and listen one of the greatest ways of of us being armed against the deception that is in the world is by is by the knowledge of christ It's God's will that his followers become mature unto the fullness of the stature of Christ Jesus. And to arm ourselves with this knowledge will keep us from being deceived. But what really is at stake here, and this is what I really want to get to, what really is so important about discovering the titles and the names of Jesus is is our eternal destiny hinges and hangs on who Jesus is. It is the linchpin, of faith in Christ to discover who Jesus actually is. See, there's a whole lot of groups out there who believe a whole bunch of strange stuff. Uh, one of the things is they don't believe in the deity of Jesus, and yet they call themselves followers of Christ or disciples of Jesus, and and they'll even have Jesus in there in the title of their of their organization. But they don't believe in the deity of Jesus. And the deity of Jesus is the linchpin of our salvation. If you err on that, on the person of who Christ is, it's, it's an unretrievable error. It's, it's, it's an error that is, that is fatal. And so discovering who Jesus is is at a great risk uh, that is, of not knowing who he is. It's, what's at stake is our eternal destiny. C.S. Lewis in uh, The Lion, uh, the Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, one of the chief characters in the story is a little girl by the name of Lucy who uh, discovers Narnia through a wardrobe. And she's telling her older brother Peter about this amazing place that she's discovered. And, and at first Peter disbelieves her. And this wise old professor begins to to referee the, the argument for Peter and says and says, Is is Lucy a liar? And and Peter says, No, Lucy's not a liar. I know her too well. She, she 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 would never be a liar. Then the professor said, Well then is is Lucy a lunatic? Is she is she insane? Is she crazy? And he says, "No, I know Lucy she's she's not crazy." Then he says, "Then the only other logical explanation is is that Lucy is telling the truth." And it becomes obvious knowing a little bit about C.S. Lewis's background it becomes obvious why he wrote that dialogue into the the story because it is his own experience. And what and what C.S. Lewis basically says is this is that is that when evaluating the claims of Jesus and evaluating the person of Jesus, you, you can't dismiss his character. You have to ask yourself the question, is Jesus a deceiver? Is Jesus a liar? And even even those who don't believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh don't believe that Jesus is a liar, don't believe that he's a deceiver. Uh, is Jesus insane? Is, is he, was he a madman? And even his enemies don't, Agree that he was would be a mad considered a, a madman, and so what is the only logical explanation that's left that Jesus was telling the truth about who he was, that he is God among us, God come in the flesh. See, Lewis was a skeptical Cambridge University professor, and uh, he was eventually won to Christ by an examination of the evidence, and it was in that examination of the evidence that he gave his life to Christ. And this is, this is one of the things that he wrote. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but not to accept him or his claim as God. He said, that's the one thing that you should never say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said about his divine nature would not be a great moral teacher. You've got to make a choice. Either this man was the son of God or else he was a madman or something worse. You can say that he was a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him my Lord and my God. See, this really is always the starting place. It's the, it's the linchpin of a Christian experience. It is, it is where we begin. And so as a result of that... Uh, you got to understand that if Jesus was not God, then his sacrifice would have been meaningless. He would not have been able to save anyone, not even himself, if he was not the sinless, perfect son of God. It is the fact that he was the son of God that made his sacrifice so precious and so costly. Instead, that is the greatest demonstration of the love of God and the power of God that well, it's the greatest story ever told. Uh, the proof and the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was is in the fact that there is an empty grave, that if his enemies could have produced the body, believe me, they would have produced the body to shut down this cult they thought was the beginning of a new movement. But Jesus was seen by, the Bible says, by above 500 eyewitnesses who were still alive at the time of the writing of the Gospels. No, the evidence that demands a verdict is, is the, the most clear fact in human history that Jesus is who he said he is by the proof of his resurrection. And so if Jesus Jesus claimed to be the Son of God in the fulfillment of more than 300 prophecies and he was not, then there would be no hope for any of us. We would all be lost And we would all be without hope for the human race. So we want to look at his claims by looking over in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. You can follow along with me on the screen. And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea is the name after one of the Caesars. Philip is one of the brothers of King Herod about 20 miles north of Galilee. And this is where he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? So Jesus is asking the question, what's the talk about me? What are people saying about me? What's the gossip concerning my identity? Who do people say that I am? Now I want you to notice that he uses here the title, the Son of Man. And I love that because The Son of Man is one of the self-imposed titles of Jesus. In fact, it is one of the most frequently, one of the most beloved titles Jesus took to himself. 82 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. 86 times in total in the New Testament. But, But it was one of the most frequently and beloved titles that Jesus gave of himself because he is fully man and fully God. And what it tells me is that he was, as the the writer of the book of Hebrews says, he was not ashamed to call us brothers. It shows me his willingness to be identified with the human race. He embraced that, not only as he would embrace the title, but God, the second person of the Godhead, becomes something in the fullness of time that he wasn't before, The, the one who was the... The Ancient of Days has become in the fullness of time joined to our humanity. And he is not ashamed to be part of the human race, to enter into the human experience. It tells me it tells me that he wasn't a reluctant Savior. It tells me that, that, that Jesus didn't have his arm twisted by his Heavenly Father. Go and save those people. No, it was out of boundless love and a desire to rescue the lost that Jesus joined himself. I mean... There's nothing to compare this to in in all of creation. That the creator of the universe, the one whose whose identity is clearly the the one who made all things, by whom all things exist, has become a part of his own creation. Again, there's nothing to compare this to. I can compare it to to my becoming an ant, but that's creature to creature. There is no comparison between the creator and becoming one. With creation. You know, none of us uh, planned on being here. Isabella didn't plan on her birth. No human being can plan on their birth. We're not here because we plan to be here. I'm, I'm talking about in church, I'm talking about on planet Earth. No one plans their own life except if you're God, who planned that He would enter into the human race through the birth of a human being. In the womb of a virgin, God did that as the demonstration of his love and his grace to rescue fallen people. I tell you, this is so beautiful. So Jesus, we come back to the question, who do people say the son of man is? This wasn't Jesus fishing for compliments. This wasn't Jesus being insecure as to who he was and he needed somehow to have have his ego propped up and and, uh, somehow insecure as to who he... No, he knew exactly who he was. The reason why he's asking this question is to elicit faith in his followers. Who are people saying the Son of Man is? Now notice the response, verse fourteen. Some say John the Baptist; others say Elijah; and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now this was, this was somewhat after Herod had already executed John the Baptist. So, so what are they saying? Are, are they believing in reincarnation? They're saying that he's John the Baptist. No, no, no. What they're basically saying, and if you know the Old Testament story of Elijah and Elisha, what they're basically saying is that when John the Baptist died, his spirit came upon Jesus in the same way that the spirit of Elijah came upon Elisha as his successor. And, and, and that's not the answer. And the answer is that he's not just one of the prophets. He, he, he's... But but the point, the important point is to see this, that no group was willing to openly acknowledge or confess that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. No group. He was a rabbi, he was a teacher, he was even a miracle worker and a prophet sent from God. Remember what Nicodemus said, We, we know that no one can do the works that you're doing unless God sent them we see you as this great teacher but no one was willing to come out and say that Jesus was in fact the long awaited promised Messiah so verse 15 says and this is emphatic Jesus poses this question and and you almost got to hear it You know, I know you can only read it but if you could hear it, it it might have sounded something like this but what are you what do you say who do you say that I am. It was, it was absolutely adamant. Who do you, and the word you there is plural. So Jesus is speaking to the whole group, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is, is twofold. Peter's response gives us two more titles, two more descriptions of the name of Jesus. Now remember, what I've been saying in this series is that there's no one name, no not even a dozen of the names and titles of Jesus, and there are so many that that is sufficient enough to describe the wonder and the and the splendor of this person that we call Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, they're like all little mosaic tiles, and and every piece is 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 a part of the identity of who he is, and the splendor and the wonder of who that he is. And so Peter's response is this, in verse 16, Then Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, which means Messiah. The Greek word for Messiah, Christ, is, is identical. The Son of the living God. So there are two titles that Peter comes up with. First, the Messiah. It means, and you probably know, is the Anointed One. It means that you, you are the one that got specially chosen, set apart. It Empowered by the presence of the Spirit, the the, the anointing or the, with the anointing with oil was was a symbol of the Holy Spirit's empowerment upon the life of Jesus. Remember, he said his first message in, in Nazareth was the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, to open blind eyes, to proclaim freedom to the captive. And, and, and what Peter was saying is, we believe that you are the, the long-awaited Messiah. We believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus is more than just a prophet. Uh, a prophet is a spokesman for God, but here is God who has come to speak for himself. You know, th- there were three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed with oil this symbol of the Holy Spirit. It was the prophet, the priest, and the king. And Jesus is more than a priest because a priest would offer sacrifices, but Jesus is the one who offers himself as a sacrifice. And Jesus is more than the king of the Jews, and he's more than the king of Israel. He's the king of the universe. And then, and then Peter's response, his second, his second title that he gives to Jesus, the son of the living God. I don't know if Peter understood all of what that name means, but the Son of the living God is co-equal and co-glorious and co-eternal with the Father. There's no difference between the Father and the Son. Remember Jesus said it himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That he is the Ancient of Days, the ageless one. That he had no beginning, he's uncreated life. In him is life. He's the the very possessor of heaven and earth. When uh, scripture reveals him, it reveals him as the creator. All things were made by him and for him. And without him, there is nothing made that is made. It reveals him as the one who forgives sins. And and, and if you might remember the story found in Mark chapter 2, it's on this occasion that they lowered this man who was a paraplegic, who was paralyzed right into the midst of the meeting and jesus said son your sins are forgiven and the jewish leaders that were there are upset with him because they know that only god can forgive sins and to prove who he was in his identity jesus said what do you think is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk but that you might know that i have the power to forgive sins he said the man who was paralyzed take up your bed and walk and he walks out of the meeting And right at that very moment, at that very moment, they should have all fallen down on their knees and said, Emmanuel, God with us, the the one who was promised, who who Isaiah said is wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They should have, but they didn't. But this one who is the object of our salvation, who, who is the object of prayer, who is, who is, as I said, the possessor of heaven and earth. So the question is, Peter, how in the world did you come to this response? How in the world? Who told you that, that Jesus is the son of the living God? Now, it's one thing to say that he's the Messiah, but, Je- but Peter said, you are more than just the Messiah. You are the son of the living God, the ageless ancient of days. How did Peter know that? And here's Jesus' response. Verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. That revelation, that understanding, didn't come to you by intellectual prowess. It it, it wasn't some act of wisdom on your part to make this conclusion. The only way that you could know this is if it was a, gift if it was a revelation that came to you from my heavenly father because it's impossible for anyone to come to the father except the father draw them peter you've been gifted and and what he says and and he uses the the expression simon peter son of jonah and and what he's saying is peter even though this remarkable statement that you've just made and and jesus says it was remarkable even though you've, you've, you've come up to this, this amazing conclusion, you're just the son of a man, whereas I am the son of the living God. And there's, there's a world of difference. Jesus, fully man, fully God, but flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You don't know that because of any intellectual power on your part, you know this because it's a gift. This revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, that's the same way that we get it, by a gift that comes from God. We, we don't know this because we're smarter or wiser than anybody else. Well, what Well, What makes the difference between one who is a follower and one who looks at the claims of Jesus and just can simply walk away and one who will bow their knee before Jesus and say, My Lord and my God. What makes the difference? It's grace. It's the gift of God. It's the calling of God. It's, it's God electing that individual to come into a relationship with him. And it's the beginning. It's the first of the, of the gifts that God begins to bestow upon us. And because it's the beginning, because it's the first gift, it is, a, it is the beginning of a treasure trove of Grace that is given to those that become heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. How many of you remember, uh, you may remember the story, uh, the Count of Monte Cristo. You know, a great, great uh, uh, story. Count of Monte Cristo. It's a story of, you know, rags to riches, uh, unjustly accused and imprisoned. And he escapes and, and, and ultimately he, he uncovers this vast treasure the, the, the treasure of Monte Cristo. I mean, it's amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't pull up one trunk filled with coins and silver and precious stones, but, but treasure chest, chest after chest after chest after chest. His servant finally says to him, Edmund, we, the boat is filled. We don't have any more room and there are at least eight more boatloads, a treasure, wealth beyond imagination. And that's exactly the beginning of what God has in store to those who love him. There's a beautiful picture of this in scripture. You know, so Let me go back to scripture, not just in story, but, but, but there's a beautiful picture in the book of Genesis. Uh, Abraham, who, who is a type of God the Father, uh, sends out his servant to find a bride for his son Isaac, who's a type of Christ. And the servant is to find a suitable companion, a wife, a bride for his son Isaac. And he finds Rebekah, and he tells Rebekah everything about Abraham's son Isaac, his beloved son, who he has made the possessor of all that he has. And Rebekah accepts the invitation to go back with him and become the bride of Isaac. Now he doesn't just hand her this tiny little gift bag, you know, with a jewel in it. No, he's come a great distance, and he's got 10 camels with him, 10 camels loaded with gifts, and that's just the deposit. And, beloved, that is is a a type and a shadow of what God has in store to those who love him. This is just the beginning of gifts. The the revelation, really, what I want you to know is that if God has made known to you that he is the son of the living God, that revelation didn't come on your own, and therefore it's the beginning. It's the beginning of gifts. And see, I I want you to see the logic of this, that scripture says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, verse 32, that of God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all the greatest gift of all God has given us the greatest gift of all in the giving of a son and God did not spare his son you know they, 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 there's an amazing group of verses that says God didn't spare the angels that first sinned, but he reserved them in everlasting chains of darkness and God did not spare the world but destroyed the world through a flood by the by Noah, and god did not spare and and it goes on and on but 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 here god did not spare his own son but delivered him over to the cross for us and then here's paul's paul's wisdom or logic that comes from the divine heart of god how will he not also freely give us all things and here's the understanding, that if God has gifted you with the knowledge that Jesus is the, the Christ, the son of the living God, is there any good thing that he's with, going to withhold from you? Is there anything that's good that you, that you need in this life that God is somehow going to be stingy about? Some years ago, we were celebrating an anniversary, and I, I went to the store, and I, and I bought for my wife an exquisite sapphire necklace. Remember that, honey? I mean, it was expensive. It was exquisite. It was be- I fell in love with it. I saw it. I said, I got to have that. It was a, it was a big anniversary, and, and I just wanted her to have it. And, you know, when she found out how much it cost me, she made me bring it back to the store and get something practical. And I tell you what, I regret doing that to this day. If I had it to do all over again, I would have said, sorry, honey, you're going to have to keep it. You know, I mean her her logic was, I'm not gonna wear this very on, on, on many occasions, it was so exquisite. Now 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 here's the thing, the reason why I bring that up to you is that when I presented that to her, I didn't present it to her in a in a in a plastic baggie. I didn't give it to her in a brown paper bag. I had it wrapped in a fancy box and and had it and it finally gift wrapped, and and it came with other presents as well. See, if, I, if I'm not going to spare on the extravagant gift, then, then why, should I, why should I skimp on the wrappings? And everything compared to Jesus in this life is the wrappings. He is all satisfying. And what, he is, what God has gifted us with is the gift of himself. Is there anything more that God can give us when he calls us in Scripture as heirs of the world, as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ? One of the most precious, beloved verses of Scripture was spoken by Jesus himself. I don't know if you realize that, but Jesus is the one who, who said this in John chapter 3. So let me, let me just read it to you. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How, How precious is that? God, the greatest lover. So loved. The greatest love. The world, the greatest number. That he gave his one and only son. The greatest gift that whosoever the greatest invitation given to the widest number of people that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life, the greatest rescue that we have ever and could ever imagine. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Remember Romans 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation. There is not now nor ever will be condemnation for those who are safe, who've been rescued by Jesus. No condemnation. Do you realize that? That not only have we been acquitted, but we have been pronounced the righteousness of God in Christ. A gift like that is priceless. And then he says this in verse 18, whosoever believes in him is not condemned, not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You see why what's at, at stake? You see why this is so important to, to, to err as to his person is a fatal flaw that we cannot afford to make a mistake about. He is the son of the living God. And because he gave his son, he gave himself. There's nothing greater that he can give. A young child was having a hard time falling asleep and was crying in bed. And after all of the things the dad was, was bringing to the child, including some stuffed animals that, that, that would have seemed to have satisfied her, she was still crying. And he finally asked, he said, what what, what is it that's going to make you stop crying? And she said, that you stay with me. There's no greater gift than we can give than the gift of ourselves. Any gift without the giver is an empty gift. And so God has given to us himself. And the Bible is very clear that this gift is the gift of of grace. You know, the word grace and the word gift are identical. It's the same, it's the same Greek word. Everything that we have is a gift. Every, we're saved by grace. We're, we're, we're kept by grace. We're saved and we're taught by grace. Everything that we have, there's nothing that we have that we did not receive from God, from a gracious and a and a wonderful Savior. There's a story about Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers it 's always good to have a, have a, a, a favorite person who 's dead uh, because they can 't do anything wrong. you know th- their life has already been lived, and, and he 's he's great to be, have as a hero, but, but when he was seventeen years old, his grandfather asked him to speak at his grandfather 's church, and for some reason, he was late in getting to the church. The train was late, and so the grandfather began speaking a sermon. Uh, from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse 9. And when uh, Charles finally got there, he's now 17 years old, his grandfather says, here, here, here's my grandson Charles, and he can preach better than I can. But Charles, you, you can't preach a better gospel, can you? And and uh, Charles was a little embarrassed and deferred to his grandfather. And His grandfather insisted, insisted no, do you come up here and speak. And the text that he was speaking from was was by, by grace are you saved through faith. And, and his grandfather was sitting behind him, and his grandfather could be heard saying, when he, when he got to that place, he would say, Charles, tell them again. Charles, tell them again. Listen, if there's any words that, that, that must be repeated, that should be repeated, it's these words, by grace you have been saved. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's the gift of God. The gift of God is God's son. It's the revelation that begins this whole process of a treasure trove of of incredible gifts that are given to us because he's he's come to rescue us, a people that were lost. In 1957, four climbers, two Italian and two German, Began to make a climb up uh, one of the mountains in the Alps. Uh, it was called the um, the uh, North Face, six thousand, v- almost vertical uh, foot uh, climb to the to the top of the mountain. And uh, what had happened was uh, the two Germans were never seen again. And uh, the two Italians were 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 deeply in trouble. They were they were perishing. Uh, the Swiss Alpine Club forbade a rescue from this part of the mountain because it was just too 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 dangerous. But a small group of Swiss climbers decided to launch a private rescue mission to save the Italians. <clears throat> so they carefully began to lower one of the. One of the men by the name of Alfred Hallipart down a six foot, 6,000 foot of the north face. They suspended him on a cable a fraction of an inch thick and they lowered him into this abyss. Could you put up that second one? Thank you. Here's how Alf, Alfred described the rescue in his own words He says, As I was lowered down the summit, my comrades grew further and further distant until they disappeared from sight. At that moment, I felt incredible aloneness. Then for the first time, I peered down the abyss of the north face of the mountain. The terror of the sight robbed me of breath. The brooding blackness of the face falling away in almost endless expanse beneath me made me look at awful longing to that thin cable disappearing about me in the midst. I was a tiny human being dangling in space between heaven and hell. The sole relief from terror was my mission to save the climber below. Folks, this is the heart of the gospel. We were trapped. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God sent his son into the abyss of our suffering and our sin and our sorrow to rescue us in Jesus he became a tiny human being dangling between heaven and hell he did this with this one purpose in mind to rescue the perishing see the gospel is much more than than a religion about telling you how to live and telling you how to be good and telling you how to do good works because we don't have any No, the the gospel is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. It, It is God coming to rescue us from ourselves, from sin, and from death. Closing, what I want you to know is this, that the name of Jesus, his name is the key that unlocks the treasure, all treasure that we could ever hope for or imagine. His name. And all that he is. This morning, do you need peace? He's the Prince of Peace. This morning, are you hungry? He's the bread of life. Are you thirsty? He's the living water. Do you need healing? He's the great physician. Do you need a miracle in your life? He's the mighty God. He is our all in all. He is everything that you will ever need. And really, the conclusion then, if that is true, if everything that I've said to you is true, then then our only possibility is to fall at his feet and to say, my Lord, my God, because that's who he is. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you this morning for the revelation of your son Jesus, the revelation of the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so Father, as we Just ask you to move among us. You're still in the business of rescuing the lost. I I pray this morning that if there's anyone here that has never made that transaction, that that has never confessed you as Lord and Savior, that, that even now they would begin the conversation by just simply saying something like this, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Be the Lord and Savior of my life. I accept you as the Son of God. Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If you do that this morning, if you make that trans- transaction, the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone that will come into me, I will in no wise cast out. And for those of you this morning who have a need today, you have a need of peace, you have a need of, of, of healing, you have a need of of rest Jesus is your answer he's our answer for the world he's my Lord and my God and it's at that point in the service now where we're just going to turn over and we're going to do that we're going to worship him one more time today because he is worthy of our worship